If you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, those verses that uh, Sam read for us. If you've been with us for the past few Sundays, or if you're just familiar with the book of Acts, you will uh, remember that the uh, execution that uh, Saul approves of there in verse 1 is, as Sam was saying to the kids, it is the, the stoning of Stephen that we read about at the end of chapter 7. Stephen was one of the newly ordained leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And he was arrested for preaching the apostolic gospel. He was not himself an apostle, but he he preached the gospel of the apostles. He preached that Jesus was the Christ. And he was arrested for preaching that gospel because the Jewish leaders said that by, by proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, he was speaking against the temple and against the law. The bulk of of chapter 7, which we've been looking at for the past several weeks, is is actually Stephen's speech at his trial. A speech wherein he he not only defends himself against the, the charges, but rather he actually turns those charges on the Jewish leaders. He shows that that in truth, Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. They were there to point to him, and therefore, it is the Jewish leaders who have spoken against the temple and the law by rejecting Jesus. We see in verse 54 of chapter 7 that when they heard this, when when the Jewish leaders heard Stephen's speech, when they heard his defense, when they heard his counter accusations, They were enraged. And in their rage, they dragged Stephen outside and they stoned him to death. That is the execution of which Paul, or of Saul, approved. Saul, who will later be Paul. But now, in the uh, the overall flow of Acts, what we we need to recognize is that this, this Stoning of Stephen, which was actually the climax of a growing persecution against the apostles, is actually going to overflow beyond the leaders of the church to all the the members of the church. You'll you'll remember that this opposition against the leaders has been growing. The first time we we saw the apostles, things went pretty well for them. They were were mocked, but but also 3,000 people came to faith on the day of Pentecost when they were filled with the Spirit and first proclaimed the the gospel publicly. But soon after that, we, we find them arrested and threatened if they don't stop preaching this gospel. Then the next time, they are arrested and not only threatened, but beaten and threatened. They're they're beaten for preaching the gospel and again threatened and told to to stop. And now here, Stephen, not an apostle, but but a minister of the apostolic gospel, he is arrested. And not only is he threatened, not only is he beaten, but he is put to death. He becomes the first martyr of the Christian church. This is the the growing opposition against the leaders of the church, against those who were proclaiming the apostolic gospel in Jerusalem. As I said, here here in chapter 8, following Stephen's death, that, that, that escalating persecution begins to expand beyond the leaders to the church at large. Notice what Luke writes. He says, And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in 
Jerusalem. No longer is it directed just against the, the leaders, but now everyone. We're, we're told in, in verse 3 that Saul is going house to house and that he is dragging off men and women. He, he, is, he is taking just the members of the congregation and he is dragging them off to prison. And seeing this reminds us that all those who confess Jesus as Lord, all those who, who proclaim Him to be the Christ, and all those who, who seek to faithfully serve Him with their lives will sooner or later, to one degree or another, be opposed and, and even persecuted by those who dismiss and despise Jesus' claim to Lordship. Jesus claims to be king. He, he claims to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He, he claims that all people owe him allegiance, that all must bow to him. And there are those who hate those claims. They hated him in Jesus' own day. And Jesus was, was put to death for, for proclaiming himself to be the Christ. And those who continue to proclaim him as the Christ, those who, who continue to proclaim him as the Lord, they will suffer in the same way. Think of what Peter says in his first letter, chapter 4. He writes to the church, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't, don't be surprised. Don't think it strange. Persecution is not something strange for the Christian. But on the contrary, it is, it is something to be Expected For Jesus himself said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now here in the United States, we have not experienced that in, with much intensity. We, we haven't experienced much by way of stoning uh, because we are followers of, of Jesus Christ. We haven't experienced what has been experienced by Christians throughout the ages and what has been experienced by, by Christians even around the world today. We recognize that, and, and, and that is God's blessing. We, ought, we actually ought to be thankful for the, the protection that God has given to His church in the United States. But I think we all have a sense that the opposition and the, the marginalization that we face, that it is escalating and expanding, even as it was in the days, early days of the church. We see this maybe most clearly with questions of, of sexuality and gender just as so in our face today. It's, it's hard to miss. If you do not affirm those uh, who are, are homosexual, if you do not affirm and celebrate those who with, with gender dys dysphoria, then you are, are more and more ostracized. You're more and more marginalized because, because the world sees you not only as wrong, but as immoral and as intolerant and as generally unfit for life in a, in a civilized society. That's the, the opinion of the world. Their, their, their hatred of Christ's lordship over this aspect of our lives is so intense that they hate those who, who continue to follow him and continue to proclaim his good word, his words of life. We, we see something similar with abortion, do we not? If you are against abortion, then you are considered to be against women somehow. You are, you are considered to, to be against reproductive rights, as, as ironic as that sounds. Again, we, we see that their, their hatred of, of Christ's lordship leads to a hatred of those who are faithfully 
following him. But of course, the world's hatred of Jesus' lordship is, is broader than sexuality and abortion. They, they hate his teaching on materialism, too. Jesus said that we are but stewards of God's wealth, that everything that we have is actually his and at his disposal, that we are to, to use all that we have in the service of his kingdom. And again, the world hates this teaching. The world hates to think of what they've earned, their money, as, as somehow a, a mere stewardship. It is theirs to do with what they want. And of course, they hate Jesus' teaching on sensuality in general. Jesus said that the pleasures of this age are, are fleeting, and therefore we must not run after them, but must instead seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, even when the way is narrow and hard. But the world hates this teaching. They, they want to do what feels good, and they want to do it now. And they don't want anybody else telling them what they may or, or may not do. Again and again and again, the, the world hates Jesus' claim to be king. They, they hate his, his kingdom. They, they want to do what is right in their own eyes. They want to be autonomous. They want to be free as they think of it. And of course, this extends to Jesus' call to be about justice and mercy in this world. Jesus called these the, the weightier matters of the law. James tells us that this is true religion, to visit the widow and the orphan in their affliction. We are to be doing justice. We are to be lovers of, of mercy, even when it requires us to set aside our own interests, even when it requires us to consider the interests of others ahead of our own. But the world hates that call. They must look out for number one. And so again and again and again, we see it over and over in every aspect of life. If we follow Jesus, if we confess him as Lord, if we seek to, to faithfully serve him as our king, then we will in one way or another enrage the world. And sooner or later, they will turn on us. Sooner or later, we will feel some measure of opposition, some measure of even persecution. Not yet at the point, of course, where, where men and women are being dragged to prison. No one fears that the authorities are going to come in here this morning and, and take us to prison because we are here proclaiming Jesus as king. But there can be no doubt that there is a cost to following Jesus, and that cost is growing. Opposition to his kingdom is only strengthening, and persecution will therefore only intensify. And we need to be prepared because we will all face persecution to one degree or another sooner or later because it's going to cost us something, whether it's at home or at work or in our neighborhoods, because we are going to be opposed for, for proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. We need to be prepared to face that opposition. And this text doesn't teach us everything we need to know about how to be prepared, but I think there are at least two important points that we can derive from this text. And the first point is what Sam was saying to the kids. It's why he showed them those running shoes, remember? He says, we only need to endure persecution when we need to. Now, that may seem sort of obvious to, to say it that way, but, but I think it's a point that we, we need to hear. We only need to endure persecution when we need to. 
That is, unless our calling requires us to stay, we may flee. Unless our our calling requires us to endure the persecution, we may seek a way of escape. Fleeing persecution is not cowardly, and it is not unfaithful. It does not dishonor our Lord. So unless your calling requires you to stay, you are free to flee. We we see this in the second half of verse 1, I believe. Luke writes, And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now it's obvious that those who were scattered, those who who, who fled from Jerusalem, they they fled, they were scattered because of the persecution. They were were fleeing those who were seeking to, to throw them in prison. It's why Saul had to go seeking for them, because they were making themselves hard to be found. But this fact alone, just the fact that they fled, doesn't in itself commend their flight. Remember, when when Jesus' disciples were scattered on the night that he was betrayed, it was was not commendable. The night that Jesus was arrested, his his disciples all disappeared. They all fled. They all scattered. But But it was because of their weakness. It was because of what Jesus called their little faith. And so the fact that the first Christians here are fleeing does not automatically mean that we are free to emulate their example. But again, notice what Luke says in verse 4. He says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now we're going to come back to this a a little bit later, but for now, simply notice that, that by scattering, they weren't going into hiding. They weren't like Peter on the, on the night of Jesus' trial. They, they weren't denying that they were his disciples. They weren't denying that they, weren't, that they even knew him. But on the contrary, they were, they were fleeing from the persecution. But as they went, they went about preaching the word. They continued to proclaim him as the Christ. They continued to proclaim that he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That he was the Prince and Savior of God's people. And so as they went, they continued to proclaim the word. And I believe that that strongly suggests to us that their flight from Jerusalem was was permissible, even wise. And I believe that this is actually confirmed as we read the rest of the book of Acts. We're going to get there eventually. I know it's taken us a while, but we'll we'll get to the rest of the book eventually. We'll, We'll work our way through, and as we go, we will see that Paul certainly endures his share of persecution. In fact, we're gonna, we see a summary of his, his, his persecution in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes, are they servants of Christ? Speaking of these false apostles who had invaded the church in Corinthian, he says, I am a better one with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And then he goes on from there to, to say that he lives in constant danger from both his own people and from the Gentiles. And so we know from Paul that, that, that he was more than willing to endure persecution when he needed to. For the sake of his ministry as an apostle, for the sake of his ministry as, as, as an ambassador of the gospel to the Gentiles, he was more than willing to endure persecution when he needed to. But we also see him avoiding persecution when he is able. 
Whether that's by appealing to to Caesar and leveraging the, the judicial system for his protection, or by escaping from a hostile city in a basket through a hole in the wall. Paul is willing to endure persecution, but he is also willing to escape when there's a means of escape and his calling does not require him to stay. So I think this is the point for us. If our calling does not require us to stay, and if there is an open way of escape, then we may flee persecution. Doing so is neither cowardly nor faithless. But of course, we need to remember the second part of that statement. There are going to be those times when we need to endure when we need to to stay, when we need to stand our ground. We we see this in in Paul's example, of course. We see it in the example of the apostles here in Acts chapter 8. What does Luke say? He says, all were scattered except the apostles. Now, now commentators will will wonder, they'll they'll speculate about why the apostles were able to to stay. And and some of them suggest that maybe the apostles were able to stay because, because they were safe in Jerusalem. The apostles were safe, but everybody else was at at risk, as if the apostles were not being targeted, either because this particular persecution was against the the Hellenist portion of the church or or because it was only against the the laymen. People have different theories as to why the apostles might have been safe, saying in Jerusalem. But I want to let you know, I don't think any of those suggestions are plausible. Nothing in the text suggests that the persecution was, was against only one segment of the church, against the Hellenists and not against the, uh, the Jewish-speaking members of the congregation. On the contrary, Luke specifically says they were all scattered. Now, that doesn't mean that, that every single member of the church had to, to leave Jerusalem except the apostles, but it cannot mean that only one segment of the church was scattered. People from across the church, people people from all groups, from all divisions, they they were all scattered from Jerusalem. And it doesn't make any sense to think that that all of a sudden the the leaders were exempt and it was only the lay people who were being persecuted. The the overflow is now uh, um, coming at the laymen of the church, the, the men and the women, the members of the congregations. But of course, this is the overflow of the persecution that was against the leaders from the very beginning. And so it hardly makes sense to think that the the leaders were now suddenly ignored. And so it doesn't, the apostles don't stay because they were safe. The apostles don't stay because they were not experiencing the persecution. Rather, the apostles stay because they felt called to stay. The most likely explanation is that they stayed because they felt that it was still their job to, to be working to establish and lay the foundation of Christ's church in Jerusalem. They are like captains staying with their ship when it's under attack. They're not willing to, to flee. They're sending some of their crew off. Get out of here. Go. But we're going to stay because we still have work to do. That's why the apostles stay. And I think it it teaches us something important. It it shows us that when the persecution comes, we may go if we don't have a reason to stay, if we don't have a need to stay. But if our call requires us, we must be prepared to endure. 
So, of course, the obvious question is, how do you know if your call is requiring you to endure, whether you're, you're free to, to go? And I, and I think we can answer that question, or at least begin to answer that question, by thinking about what our calling is. What, what is a calling? What, is it, what does it mean to be called? Calling and vocation, those are the, the same things. Vocation is the, the Latin for, for calling. And so what is your vocation? What is your, your calling? Well, the, the first thing to remember is that your, your calling is, is given to you by God. God is the caller. He is the one who, is, who has called you to something. And so your calling is, is more than just your job. Your, your job is a calling. Your job is a work that God has given you to do. But it's not the only work that God has given you to do. It's not the only role that he has, he has called you to fulfill. You actually have many callings as a, a child of God. Your, your primary calling is to Christ. Your primary calling is, is to, into his service. But that primary calling into the service of the king manifests itself in any number of ways. And all of the, the jobs that God gives you to do, all of the roles he gives you to fulfill, those are your callings. I can, I can illustrate just with my own life. Obviously, my job, the job I get paid for, is to be a pastor, to, to be the pastor of, of this congregation. That is, my, that is one of my callings, but it is not my only calling. I am, I am also a husband. That is a, a calling. That is a vocation. I am a, a father. That is a, a, a vocation. I am a, a son and a son-in-law. I'm a brother and a, and a brother-in-law. I'm a nephew. I'm a cousin. I'm an uncle. And, and, and beyond family, I am, I am a friend. I am a neighbor. I am a, a citizen. And you could go on adding to the list. These are all callings. These are roles that we have been given to play. And you have the same sort of list. You have the same sort of, of callings upon your life. God has, has prepared good works for you to do. That you might walk in them. And those are the, His calling upon your life. And, and each calling entails certain responsibilities before God. That's what it means to be called. You're, you're called to something. You're called to a work. You're called to a, a role. And so as we begin to think about this question, we, we must ask ourselves, when, how do we know when we must stay? We must stay when the responsibilities of our calling require us to stay. Now, it's not always easy to figure that out. It's, it's not always easy to, to know exactly what that means. But, but again, we can, we can think about our own situations. Maybe some of you are facing persecution at work. It's probably mild at this point, but you can sense that it is, it is growing. You're facing some sort of opposition at work because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you confess Him as Lord. Because you serve Him faithfully. But at the moment, you have no other viable options at least not in, in, in this area or not where you want to, to be. And so you have a calling to work, to do something useful with your hands or eat your own bread, but you, you, you don't have any other options to, to leave your current employment. And so your calling for now, maybe not forever, but your calling for now is to stay and to endure for the sake of Christ. Maybe the persecution is coming from a, a member of your family or your, your extended family. Well, you are tied to them by blood. You are called to, to love them well regardless. 
And so again, if, if loving them well means enduring the persecution, then you endure the persecution in order to love them well. It doesn't mean you can't be wise. It doesn't mean that you can't have boundaries in your relationships. But if, if loving them well means continuing to endure their persecution, their, their slander, whatever it is, then you endure for the sake of love. Maybe some of you feel just called to a, to a particular cause. You, God has laid it upon your, your heart to, to be an advocate for uh, the pro-life movement, or God has, has laid it upon your heart to be a, an advocate for, for uh, racial uh, reconciliation in our community, or, or, or whatever the call happens to be, God has, has laid a certain calling upon your heart, and, and because you sense that as a call from God. And therefore, you must endure... The persecution that comes with pursuing that calling in your particular context. Now again, it's not always easy. I'm not suggesting that these things are are cut and dry. It's not always uh, clear. It's a wisdom question. Do I stay or or do I go? Do do I endure or do I escape? It is a wisdom question that is best answered in the the community of the church with the counsel of other spirit-filled believers. But what I want you to see this morning is that this is the question that you must be asking yourself. Does my calling require me to stay? Because if not, there is no virtue in suffering unnecessarily. We don't endure just for the sake of enduring. We endure when the works that God has given us to do require us to endure. But when we are not required to stay, we are free to escape. We are free to to leave the persecution. We don't have to just take it because we're followers of Christ. I think that's the first thing that we we see here in this text. But there's a second thing here. Because not only do we see that, that they flee, all but the apostles, but we also see what they do as they are going. And that, I think, teaches us something important about our responsibility, whether we stay or whether we go. And that's this. Whether we stay or whether we go, we must be prepared to continue confessing and serving Jesus as Lord. Of course, that's just assumed of those who stay, right? That's what staying means. If, you're, if, you, if you renounce Jesus as Lord while you stay, you're not really enduring the persecution. You're surrendering to it. So it's, so it's just assumed of those who stay that, yes, you, you stay and you continue to confess Christ as, as Lord and you, and you take the, uh, the persecution that comes with being one of His. But I want you to see that those who flee have the same responsibility. If you decide that you are free to to escape a persecution, you are not free to stop honoring Christ with your life or or confessing Him with your mouth. That is what you are called to, even if you are escaping. And we we see that here. We we see that the, the first Christians, even as they are escaping from Jerusalem, they both continue to honor Christ with their life, and they continue to confess him with their lips. We, we see the, the first in their uh, burial and lamentation over Stephen. Think about the significance of that. Think about the significance of the fact that, that these first Christians not only bury Stephen, but make great lamentation over him. Remember, Stephen has just been killed by the Jewish authorities. They were enraged at him so much so that they took justice into their own hands and stoned him to death. 
How dangerous would it have been for the first Christians to identify with him? To say, hey, we're with Stephen. This would have been a dangerous thing to, 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 to offer him a, a proper burial. But it was not entirely uncommon. There were, there were those who would, who would bury uh, those who had been executed. But it was actually prescribed that it was illegal to lament them. You, you could bury them, but you cannot lament them. And yet we're told here that they made great lamentation over him. They, they mourned for him. They, they highlighted the injustice of his death by making great lament over him. And in this action, they confess that they are with Stephen, that they, they believe his gospel, that they understand that it was not Stephen who was blaspheming the temple and, and God, but rather it was the Jewish authorities who put him to death who were doing so. And so by their lives, they continue to confess Jesus as Lord. And we must do the same. We must continue to, to confess Jesus as Lord with our lives, even when we are escaping from persecution. Again, I don't know exactly what that might mean for you. How do you honor Christ as Lord with your life? You'll, you'll have to, to wrestle with that your, yourself. You'll have to, 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 to work that out with, with spiritual wisdom. Again, in the, with the counsel of your brothers and sisters who are, who are also spirit-filled Christians seeking to, to honor Christ as Lord. But you need to be prepared to continue, continue honoring Christ with your life even when you are escaping. But simply honoring Him with your life is not in itself sufficient. For the Christians did more than just that. Not only did they honor him with their lives, but they also continued to honor him with their lips. Luke tells us in verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now there's profound irony here. It, it, it is uh, obvious that the, uh, the intended effect of the persecution uh, is, is being exactly reversed. Uh, that that they were, they're intending to stamp out this movement. They're attempting to, to stamp out the church. And yet, uh, by, by this persecution, they're actually scattering the seed of the word farther and, and, and to the ends of, of the kingdom. God works this way. It's, it's what he does. He, he takes the evil intentions of evil men and he turns them for his own purposes. He's, he's done it again and again and again throughout history. Maybe nowhere more clearly than in the cross. Uh, the, the Jewish authorities sought to put Jesus to death and in so they ended up offering up the sacrifice that would bring atonement. They, they, they confirmed him as the Lord and the Savior by opposing him even to the point of death. This is the way God works. He, he turns the evil intentions of evil men against them. He, he works for his own purposes regardless of the, the rebellion that, that men throw against him. Those who shake their fist in his face and say, we will not be ruled by you, uh, he holds in derision. But there's more than just irony here. Notice that, that, that God is using the, the, the people who go to spread the word. He's using them to, to scatter the seed of the word. They, they go about preaching the word. Now that doesn't mean that they all became preachers in the way that we normally use that, that term today. John Stott suggests that the statement that they preached the word is, is maybe a little bit misleading to modern ears. It, it means something more like sharing the good news, gossiping the, the gospel. 
Now, some of them were preachers. We're going to see that in the stories that follow, the the story of of Philip. But most of them are are just simply going about gossiping the gospel. They are are taking the good news with them uh, wherever they go. They They are continuing to share Christ, to confess Him as Lord. And I want us to see that this is the way that the gospel spread beyond Jerusalem, and this is the way that the gospel will continue to spread today. We are the people of God. And we are to be confessing Christ as the reason for our hope as we go. Here at Trinity, most of our our ministries actually focus on on building our own members up in the faith, establishing them in the faith, equipping them to, uh, to, to live that faith out. And that is as it should be. That is as it should be. I want you to hear me say that. But we are equipping you to be mature disciples who can scatter from here into the world with the gospel on your lips. Maybe we need to do a better job equipping you to do that. And I I hope we will continue to get better at equipping you to, to share your faith in the world. But that is God's design. As you go, whether it's in the course of your ordinary life or whether it's as as you're escaping persecution, you are taking the gospel with you. You are confessing Christ as the the reason for your hope. And you are inviting those whom you encounter, those in the world, those those who are experiencing the brokenness of life in this present evil age. You are inviting them to come and to hear more about the Savior who can give them the words of life and life abundant. This is the way that we engage. This is the way that God spreads his word throughout the world. And it cannot stop because of persecution. Whether you stay or whether you go, this is your calling. Whether you escape or whether you endure, you are to confess Christ before men. You are to share the good news of of Christ's resurrection with those who so desperately need to hear. It doesn't mean that you all have to be preachers. It doesn't mean that you're all equipped to be evangelists. No, you you simply go confessing Christ as your hope and inviting them to come and hear more, to to come and, 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 and talk with those who are equipped to be evangelists, those who are equipped to be preachers. Bring them in that they might hear the good news of this Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ who is Lord. This this Jesus Christ who died and rose again that all who follow him might not fear death any longer. But know that now for them, death is gain because they have an imperishable inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. You see, that's that's the final thing we need to see here this morning. We are able to do this. We are able to confess Jesus Christ as Lord because he is Lord. Because he is the risen king who's now seated at the right hand of the Father. Because he is the one who reigns and is coming again. And because we know him to be Lord, we can confess him as Lord before the world, regardless of the opposition, regardless of the costs. We can continue to follow him and and serve him faithfully because he is our king. And if he is for us, It matters not who stands against us. We can take up our crosses and follow him because we know that the one who loses his life following him gains true life indeed. And because the one who dies following him lives, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that?
Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your kindness to us. We, we thank you for this uh, picture into the, uh, the spread of the early church. We, we thank you for the way that it not only prepares us to, to expect persecution, but, it, but it, it teaches us how to respond. Shows us that we are free to escape if there is a way of escape, but that we are also able to endure if we are required to endure. Because our Lord is King. And he is with us, and he will never leave us or forsake us. Father, put, uh, cause these truths to put down deep roots in our heart, we pray. To the praise of your glory. Amen.